Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 206 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I've got a special guest today. I've got Brody Sharp of the Run Smarter podcast joining me all the way from Australia. Brody is a physiotherapist there in his home country, and his podcast is dedicated to the topic of running smarter so that you can avoid injury. He joins me for a reprisal of the episodes that we did with James Dodds on Running True or False, episodes 37 and 149. This time we're going to do a Running True or False Injury Edition version with Brody as we both came to the table with five different statements that are related to injury and we're going to throw those back and forth to each other say true or false give our perspective on each and then debate those so a lot of fun had a lot of fun recording this episode with bro and i think your interest will be piqued by some of the perspectives coming out of this show so we'll get to that in a second but first i've got a couple of special events that we've got to cover to give you an update on what's going on in the world of elite racing here in the u.s as again Races continue to get creative with what they're doing in order to put together some pretty cool events. The first I wanted to talk about is the Michigan Pro Ekaden put on by the Brooks Hansen squad in Michigan and that had some of the big pro teams from all over the country, including NAZ Elite there, as well as, of course, Brooks Hansen's and the Minnesota Distance Project, as well as the Roots Running out of Boulder. And then you had... Team Boulder, coached by Lee Troop with Jacob Riley on that team who finished second at the Olympic trials back in February. The Bowerman Track Club was supposed to be there, but unfortunately had to bow out because some of their teammates had to go into quarantine because of an exposure to someone who had the coronavirus. And so they weren't they weren't there and that was too bad because I think they would have given NAZ Elite potentially a run for their money. Well, this one was just fun to watch. Definitely a cool event. As for those that don't know about an Ekaden, it's a marathon distance relay with a combination of different distances up to 10K. So you have two different 10K legs, two different 5K legs, and two different 6.1K legs. This was a mixed relay. And so it had one male and one female running each distance across the relay to finish that full marathon distance. Ultimately, NAZ Elite won this one from start to finish, running a combined 2.10.11 to beat the Hanson's Distance Project crew. That was just about two minutes behind in 2.12.08. Minnesota Distance Elite was third. Roots Running was fourth. Team Boulder with Jacob Bradley came in fifth. And then Hanson's had a second team that ended up sixth. The slowest time overall was that Hanson's team with 2.15.06. So all of these teams were staggered within five minutes of each other. And while the top two places held pretty consistently with Hoka's team leading the entire way and Hanson's team right behind, the middle middle teams ended up battling a little bit for that third place spot with Minnesota Distance Elite pulling that out by just under 10 seconds or just actually just over 10 seconds ahead of Roost Running Project. So there was some excitement there in the middle, which is pretty pretty cool, pretty fun. And I think this is an event that will continue to happen even to next year to bring this Japanese tradition to our soil. So kudos and shout out to certainly the Brooks Hansen's team, the Hansen brothers for pulling this off, but also to all of those teams for making this race happen in a safe way. I think, I think they're onto something and hopefully this will spark some other races like this across the U.S. as I think the Ekaden is a pretty cool format. So that was that. And then also we have to give a shout out to Courtney DeWalter who won the Biggs Backyard Ultra finishing a total of 68 loops, 283.3 miles over 68 hours. And she was the last one standing for that event to get the win in just under three days worth of running. I mean, pretty, pretty impressive. For those that don't know the concept behind the Biggs Backyard Ultra, 
basically what you have to do is run a 4.167 mile loop every hour on the hour. And no matter what time you finish, you got to be ready to roll again once that next hour starts to go for that next loop. And so you have a, a trade-off between how fast you run that loop and how much time you need to recover, refuel, hydrate, et cetera, in order to get back out for that next loop. And so Courtney apparently had it pretty dialed in. From what I understand, she was running pretty consistently 45-minute loops, then would have 15 minutes to rest, recover, grab some food, and then get back on that starting line and do it all over again for 68 straight hours. She lasted, outlasted all the men, all the women in order to earn that victory. So kudos to Courtney DeWalter for doing it. And apparently her last loop was one of her fastest of the day. So huge shout out to her for getting that done and for being able to do that for 68 straight hours. I, I don't think I could do anything for 68 straight hours, much less run for 68 straight hours. So quite an amazing feat for her. Incidentally, there was an international race happening. Courtney had to quit once her race was over, but there were simultaneous events happening all over the world, including in Belgium, where the winner lasted 75 hours for the entire event, which is just absolutely insane. So over three days for the race in Belgium. But pretty cool stuff. Amazing result from Courtney DeWalter showing you once again that women can get the men, especially in these longer endurance events. So pretty cool stuff there. All right, let's turn to my conversation with Brody Sharp. As I mentioned, we're going to be doing a, an edition of the True-False segment where basically we go back and forth, each giving each other the statement. Then the person responding has to indicate whether they believe that statement is true or false back it up with some evidence, and then we have debate about that topic. And we'll go back and forth. We each brought five statements to the table. We actually get to eight of them, and I think you'll find this a provocative and fun discussion between Brody and I. He's the physio physiotherapist, physical therapist, as we call it in the U.S., and I am the running coach. So we'll see if we can teach each other something in this conversation. And again, Brody is the host of the Run Smarter podcast. I would highly encourage you to check that out, especially if you have questions about staying injury-free. He recommends starting on episode one, getting through those first 10 episodes where he lays out some of his foundational principles about staying injury-free. And then you can jump ahead to one of his 70-plus episodes. So with that as a quick intro, let's jump into this conversation with Brody. True, false the Running Injury Edition. Here we go. Welcome, Brody Sharp, to the Running Rogue Podcast. How are you doing today, Brody? I'm very good, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Excited to have you on. Thanks for joining all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Yeah, I'm pumped. It's um, it's still like oh, 7.20 in the morning, but I've still got my bed <laughs> here, but I've had my breakfast and I'm good to go. Nice. Awesome. Well, thanks for reaching out. You are host of the Run Smarter podcast and a physiotherapist by training, which is a, which is a physical therapist for those using U.S. terms. And so we're going to be talking today about injury and hopefully busting some myths about injury and rehabbing from injury. So we're going to do a fun true-false episode. We've done, I've done a couple of these with James Dodds talking about running training concepts, but Brody had reached out and thought, uh, these injury topics would be good. And so I said, Hey, let's do another true false episode, but make it a running injury edition. So that's what we're going to do. I've got five statements. He's got five statements. We may not get through all of them, but we're going to go back and forth, throwing, throwing out the statements to the other, and then indicate what, what we think true or false. And then we'll debate it. Hopefully learn something along the way. We haven't shared our list with each other. So this is going to be all free, free form and off the cuff and should be a lot of fun. So thanks for joining Brody and thanks for being willing to go into the unknown of this type of discussion. Yeah. I love this stuff. I love talking about this and busting some myths and misconceptions. So yeah, very much looking forward to it. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll jump right in. I'm going to start and I'll throw a thorough statement to you. You'll give me true false and your reasoning and then we can discuss. So true or false Brody pain is your friend. Oh, okay. Um, I will say, 
I will say it's false because it's often misinterpreted, but um, I love this question because it is open to debate. So um, my rationale, pain can be a good thing. It can be a good sign that the, the body needs to recover and it can be extremely helpful if an injury does arise to make sure you don't like overdo things. Um, but uh, there is a big difference between good pain and bad pain. We do have the good pain being that like delayed onset muscle soreness that's uh, the body like repairing and healing and becoming stronger as a result of it. But then you also have that bad pain, which can tend to be like the, the ligaments or the joints the, that have overreacted to something and can signify bad pain. But I do have, or I think we might touch base on pain a little bit later on, but um, I would say that in most cases, it can be the brain just signaling to you that something might have gone awry or you do need to take a rest or two, uh, a day rest or two. But um, yeah, for the most part, I would say brain the, the pain can be quite helpful, but can often be misinterpreted. Fair enough. I would say from a coaching perspective, and I've espoused this on a recent episode, I, I, I would argue the other side. I think we're probably in a similar place in terms of philosophy here, but I think pain is your friend in the sense that it can be that signal to you to dictate your actions, whether it be backing off from running because it's something that's popped up. And as you rehab from injury, pain can be a guide in terms of how you resume activity because if that pain is continuing to move in the right direction, then that's a sign that what you're doing is working. And so if, as long as you're in tune with the pain and using it as that appropriate signal to start and or stop when you need to or progress or regress when you need to, then in that way, it can be your friend. But I agree with you. If you interpret it strictly from the point of is pain good or bad, pain itself is generally bad because it means something's wrong. I think, um, can, can we maybe um, subcategorize this into like acute pain? So if you've had it for a, a couple of days, a couple of weeks, because that can be very accurately um, interpreted. And I think we'd probably be on the same page if we were both considering like acute pain. Okay. And how and, would you differentiate uh, that from the other side? Well... <laughs> But I've got another true or false statement that's later on in the, which <laughs> I could probably do next to help okay. like with the flow of the conversation. But okay. um, I think with this true or false statement, I think we're on the same page when we're talking about acute pain in terms of like, <clears throat> it can be like very easily interpreted whether you're doing something good or bad uh, because, you know, sometimes if something's stiff or if something's um, flared up or if something's really irritable, it's you often a sign that, you're doing something too much too soon or that you return to running too soon. And um, yeah, it can be a really nice guide to depending on like your activity levels. So what, one quick follow-up, then we'll get to your next statement, which is, and maybe you, maybe you'll want to punt this question to after we get there, but what do you advise people as it relates to you using things that might like pharmaceuticals that might numb the pain or reduce the pain? Uh, it's usually not recommended that we use, say, like um, non-steroidal anti-inflammation medication, uh, particularly with some injuries, unless you're wanting to um, take the, the edge off some of the pain or unless there's like significant swelling, then you'd go with some anti-inflammations. But for most running-related injuries, it's not trauma-based uh, it's usually like a tissue being overreacted and it's often not recommended. And there is a new, like, do, are you familiar with like RICE or RICE or that acronym? If someone is injured, the rest ice compress yes. elevate Yes, is a new one over the last, I think five or six years that's come out in the literature and the, the acronym is peace and love. And it's a very, <laughs> very long one, but in the, let me try and write this down so I can remember peace is um, just like in the very, very early days, it's protect, elevate, but the A in peace is avoid anti-inflammation medication. And it's been shown that if you do contain, like if you have an overuse injury and you use anti-inflammation, it can actually delay healing and actually um, lengthen your recovery times. And so that's, um, yeah, the, the, 
literature is starting to show that we're not really recommending medication for pain signals, especially if it's an overuse injury. It might be a bit different if it's trauma-based, like if you roll an ankle or if you get tackled in like team sports or something like that. Okay, we can agree with all of that. <laughs> so perfect. So let's so we'll end that debate there and let's go to your next statement. Okay, yeah, I'll skip down the list because we'll we'll stay on the topic of pain. And I've got okay, Chris, true or false? Chronic pain is a sign that the injury or the tissues haven't healed yet. And so chronic pain would be something that goes on for like maybe a couple of months, six months, something like that. So that is a sign that the injury hasn't healed yet. Yeah, say the the tissues, like the ligaments, the muscles, the joints haven't healed yet. This seems like a trick question, but I would I would think that that would be true. That if you still have pain, if you're having chronic pain, that that's a sign that that healed that it hasn't properly healed yet. Yeah, um, I would. I would say it's false based on like my understanding of chronic pain. Yeah. And this is a, a massive topic that I go into. I go deep in um, to some of my podcast episodes on this one. And usually when it comes to the body healing, a tendon muscle, like depending on its blood supply um, takes varied amounts of time to like physically heal. So muscle usually takes a couple of weeks, ligaments, sometimes a couple of weeks, uh, parts of like, if a ligament or cartilage has really poor blood supply, depending on the area of the body, it can take a little bit longer, but usually max would take a couple of months, but we often see that pain injuries far extend beyond um, months, sometimes years, sometimes years. And that's when we really need to um, understand the mechanics of pain and what is actually going on in the body when you do have pain for a long period of time. And yeah, there's tons and tons of research right now looking at the importance of the brain and how the brain evaluates um, certain scenarios and certain bits of information to um, produce pain. And so if I can uh, maybe use an example to help clarify a lot of things, let's just say someone has um, plantar fasciitis and they've overdone it in the early days, they've done too much too soon, or they've transitioned their shoes too quickly, they're flared up, um, and they have the tissues themselves being really sensitized and really irritable, quite nasty. If people have experienced plantar fasciitis in the past, they'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, As the months go on, people start to develop um, fears and anxieties around certain like maybe walking barefoot, maybe running. Um, And what the brain does, all the pain is uh, created by the brain and the intensity and the volume that you experience that pain will develop, will depend on how the brain evaluates things. And as the months go on and on and on, and as you start to believe that running triggers pain or walking barefoot triggers pain, or, um, you know, certain type of footwear triggers pain. This is just like the brain's starting to collect bits of data and bits of information. So even though down the track years and years later, even if those tissues have completely healed, there is the brain still going on. Oh, we can't do that. That's dangerous. Let's produce pain so that you stop doing that because the brain's job is to get you into survival and away from danger. So that's when it sends all those pain signals and chronic pain, especially for low back pain, tons of research on this um, can be around the backs completely healed. There's nothing going on, but still people still have this persistent pain and we need to start to retrain the brain, reframe your beliefs. And um, that's when we start to get to really effective long-term management with these chronic pain sufferers. So it's not necessarily the local tissues they have completely healed. You scan them, they're completely healed, but pain still exists. That's when we need to start addressing beliefs and start addressing, um, yeah, the, the way that the brain processes things. Okay, this is fascinating because I have had experience with this myself uh, related to, I've had this type of experience related to ankle sprain, for example, where part of the game is just convincing the brain and the nerves and the neuromuscular system that everything's okay. And, and I've had that pain type of pain related to sciatic nerve issues where everything's fine, everything's healed around the nerve, 
but there's pain there simply because it still thinks something's wrong. And so it's in a way guarding yep. you from yep. activity. I may Absolutely be, I, I may be experiencing that right now related to some, what is now become chronic in a sense that it's been going on for about three months, right? Heel pain, which I got, I've gotten mixed diagnoses on it. Some people would say that I've seen practitioners would say it's a just classic plantar fasciitis and others are saying that it's more plantar nerve related and that that plantar nerve was impinged at some point and it's still kind of pissed off or inflamed and it is steadily getting better, but I now feel it more post run than I do during the run. And I totally would be open to believing that it's simply because my brain hasn't accepted the fact that it's okay. Yeah. And so what do you do? So what is what do you do in that situation? <laughs> yeah, it's um, reframing a lot of things. It's reframing a lot of beliefs. I've had like health professionals and doctors and surgeons tell people information that's totally inaccurate about how things heal. And so they've gone away with a certain belief about pain. Like I've had people go away from surgeons and think that tendons don't heal because the surgeons told them tendons don't heal. You'll need surgery. Um, You know, just this ingrains a lot of things into their belief system. You need to slowly build up confidence so the right education is number one, know about um, healing, you know about your injury, you have clarity about your injury, you have a correct diagnosis about your injury, you have a, a plan in place about your injury. All these things just work together to calm down the brain and say, actually, you know, we can overcome this. Like we've got a step, we've got small steps in place to help build up your confidence, to help build up your tolerance, because even though the tissues themselves might not be damaged, we still need to build up the the capacity for those tissues to tolerate certain things. So it might be a one mile run. It might be a 30 minute walk. It might be standing for 30 minutes or standing for two hours. You know, it's slowly building up the capacity because along the way, the brain starts to realize, actually I can, I can deal with that. I, I can, um, I didn't diet. There wasn't a flare up and you know, we're okay after that. And then you just take the next progression and along the way, along that step ladder, as you build up the tolerance more and more and more, you gain more and more confidence and the brain starts to calm down more and more and more because it's like, you know what, I am capable of doing this. Um, and then there's also the education around a flare up like management plan. Like if symptoms do arise, we know that it isn't the tissues that are flaring up. It's more just um, we've exceeded a little bit of tolerance and this is our flare up management plan if it does happen. And then after a couple of days, we're back to that original management plan. So education is the best thing. Uh, Debunking a lot of beliefs that you might have is a big thing. And then having the correct management in place to build up confidence. But how do you know the difference between that and a situation where maybe you just have lingering pain that is because something has taken a while to heal? Well, my, my counter argument would be, it doesn't matter because the management is still exactly the same. You're still getting the same education. You're still having the same management in place because any injury, any acute injury is still trying to work out what tolerance, what load we can put it through that can still tolerate certain amounts and then just building you up from there. So um, making sure that we're not ingraining beliefs along the way and we're still being educated around pain because whether it's acute, whether it's chronic, pain is still the same. Like the pain is still evaluated from the brain. The severity and intensity that you experience doesn't reflect tissue damage. It actually reflects what the brain interprets to be a threat. So for an example, if um, if say someone had a bee sting on their finger and they were a soccer player, they would not experience as much pain as if someone was playing a violin or was you know, a very experienced violinist and then got a bee sting on their finger just because it means more to them. It means more to their career. It means more to their um, like their uh, hobbies and that kind of those interests. And 
Therefore, they will experience pain more because it means more to them. Exactly the same processes, exactly the same um, physical damage, but the brain will evaluate it differently. And yeah, so in your experience, if you've set, if you have plantar fasciitis and you also have a friend or a family member who's had plantar fasciitis for years and years and years and hasn't got it better, and then you experience uh, plantar fasciitis, you're going to experience it at a greater intensity and it's going to be harder to get rid of because you believe that it's a, a terrible injury, it's not going to get better, um, and the severity levels will intensify just because you've experienced that and you have that belief um, ingrained within you. Fascinating. I can do a, a whole episode on pain, but I think um, I That's think we've got a, a whole bunch of other things to cover. Yeah, but it's a good it's a good it's it's a good contrast because I think the way you teed up that idea of acute pain being a helpful and potentially informative thing, but as it lingers, it's it starts to become sort of takes on a life of its own, so to speak. Yeah, and, well said. And it's pretty interesting that process of convincing the body that it's okay because I've you know, I experienced that in spades with a sciatic nerve issue that I had in January of this year. It took me about four or five weeks to work through it, but it was completely just a process of convincing the brain that everything was okay. So that the nerve would calm down essentially. Yeah. And the brain calms down. And as a result, the nerve will calm down. Yeah. And it's interesting because it took, well, it took, it, it took me because I was in the process of training for a marathon that I was thinking was in jeopardy, but it took me running 20 miles on that ha- with that pain and managing it every step of the way in order to essentially flip the script and, and convince my brain that it was going to be okay. If I can run that far with the injury, then it's going to be okay. So anyway, I'm glad that you have these experiences to, yeah, to so help I know illustrate it. Yeah, yeah. So I know it, I know it to be true. And I'm glad you brought up that contrast. I think it's, <laughs> it's important for the listener to understand. All right. So let's go to number two in my list. And this one may be more straightforward, but I'm curious to your, to get your perspective. So true or false prehab is better than rehab. Oh, a great one for a physical therapist to answer. (laughs) Um, Yes, I would say it's definitely true. Prehab is definitely better than rehab because we want to keep things operating at a a really nice capacity rather than trying to rebuild something that has been broken in a drug or treat term. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I would um, I would say that when it comes to prehab, well, oftentimes when people get injured, what they do is because runners are quite stubborn, <laughs> they run through an injury uh, until it gets too irritable or too severe and or until the point where they can't run because of that injury and then they try and get it fixed. And I often talk about this in terms of motivation levels and people are like, oh, yeah, once they're injured, they're, that motivates them to go Um, seek help. And I said, no, (laughs) they don't because they run with that injury. And it's once it becomes, once that injury uh, prevents them from doing something really meaningful, that's when their motivation goes through the roof. And so my example would be, let's say they have knee pain and they're running and they get a bit of knee pain. That's fine. They keep running. Um, They keep running on this knee pain for a couple of weeks until the knee pain becomes so bad that they can't run or they can't go up the stairs in the morning or they can't play with their kids or um, yeah, they can't do their work. Like as soon as that happens, the motivation levels for them to seek help goes through the roof. And it's by that stage that it's so uh, sensitized and so irritable that we really have to backpedal a lot. And the road to recovery is so much longer because they've taken that rehab approach Whereas the prehab, which is a bit harder because you need to do a whole bunch of things to prevent it. Um, But it can be just as simple as as soon as it becomes a day one, day two kind of niggle, getting the right advice and it becomes a one or two day injury or a five day injury instead of a five week injury. And so prehab definitely better, but very hard to implement. The rehab we can get really early on to be super effective but the rehab down the track, if you if it comes in too late, <clears throat> can be um, we can backpedal a lot, and the road to recovery is a lot trickier. What what would your thoughts be on that? <laughs> I agree. This one's definitely true, and it was a bit of a softball on purpose because I wanted to emphasize the point of 
if you get to something before it becomes a full-blown injury, then that's really the key in the magic. And in my conversations with athletes, I often have them come to me and say, oh man, this you know training cycle has been so frustrating because I had this happen, I had that happen. As if the perfect niggle-free training cycle exists. And it just doesn't <laughs> is the harsh reality right. when you're, when you're pushing your body to the limit in any type of training program, whether it be in running or probably in any other sport. And so you have to just accept the fact that these things are going to pop up. And if you're as preemptive as you can be about addressing those niggles, when they pop up proactively before they become a full blown injury, then that's where the real magic is. But part of it is this idea of just simply accepting that that's a part of the process. Managing niggles is a part of the process and it's something you're always going to be dealing with if you're committed to rigorous training. Yeah. And when, when I have a lot of people contact me on social media, I always like, Oh, how's your running going? And all, all that kind of thing. And, or oh, what do you want to learn more about is another one that I like asking. And almost everyone is injury prevention, injury prevention, injury prevention. And just because they've experienced injuries and they know how bad it can be. And I always say to, and I say on my podcast several times, we can't get that injury prevention goal that we try and um, get to. We can't get the risk down to zero. It can never be zero because injuries are so multifactorial and there will be niggles here and there. But what we can do, and this is the premise of my podcast around making smarter training decisions is once something does arise, like we can definitely implement something to lower your risk of injury. We can definitely make smarter training decisions to reduce your risk of injury. However, because we can't get it down to zero, once symptoms do arise, it's making those smarter decisions once again, day one, day two, day three, um, that can really uh, keep you moving, keep you running. You probably... If it's the right things, we don't need to slow down your running at all. If anything, we might just back off the mileage for a week, um, but you're still maintaining a good level of fitness. You're maintaining your strength and then you're just back running as if like we've just had a little blimp on the radar rather than like a full um, slam on the brakes. And that's a mistake that a lot of runners make and that a lot of runners need to learn. Unfortunately, making those smart decisions is really, really tough. And it takes a lot of um, education and a lot of like determination for you to find the right information because there's a lot of conflicting stuff out there. But um, podcasts like yours and podcasts like mine do a really good job of answering that. Yeah. And I would also add having a, as I talk about often, having your team that you can consult whether that yes. be a, a PT, a good chiropractor, whoever it may be, a, a physician who really understands runners, having your team that you consult on the front end so that they can help you triage the situation before it becomes a full-blown issue is also key. Agreed. All right. We'll, uh, we'll end that topic and go to your next one. Okay. Um, uh, I'm questioning whether i'll answer this one it might be a quick one because we've touched on it already but true or false it's often best to completely rest an injury that i would say is false because to me there's always something you can be doing to actively recover from that injury barring perhaps a full-blown fracture or stress fracture where sometimes complete rest is needed in order to allow that that fracture to heal before you can start to do some things. But I would say even in that case, oftentimes I've had physicians try to put me in a boot or something. I've had a, a tibial stress fracture and you know they want to try to immobilize and put you in a boot instead of allowing you to move around on it some and walk some and I, I actually think that's the wrong approach that the more you can stay mobile while promoting a healing process the better even in a stress fracture situation obviously without the weight bearing and and the significant activity that would that would push you in the wrong direction on that type of injury but in general i would say false it's not about complete rest it's what are the activities that you need to be doing sometimes that includes light running or cross training sometimes it doesn't but either way, it likely includes some sort of active rehab. Couldn't agree more. I think it's funny that I always come up, try and come up with these like blanket statements or like um, universal principles for an injury. And it always seems that stress fractures are the like exception to the rule because <laughs> they're just something completely different. I do <clears throat> agree. Um, if it's a full-blown stress fracture, you do need to rest that particular area. The body does need to heal that area, but there 
you still have other limbs, you still have other body parts. You can still do some upper body sort of stuff if it's a lower limb stress fracture, but stress fractures aside, it's a very good lesson that people learn that if they do succumb to an injury, um, let it be like a, a flared up tendon or something along those lines, rehab like should start very, very early. Even if it's like a muscle tear, like if it's a low grade muscle tear, low levels of strengthening should start really, really early. And um, I'd say if there's a particular flare up day one, day two, you can rest, but from day three onwards, you're doing some sort of active rehab. And this is where like a physical therapist, um, health professional can get really creative with your, your management, say it's a knee pain. Um, you might be able to handle good, uh, like low levels of jogging, just like back off the pace. Maybe it's an Achilles issue. Maybe we put you in like different type of like, maybe your shoes with a higher heel lift. And then we just, avoid hills or avoid speed. And then you can still maintain your level of fitness while maintaining that injury. Or we do some cross training. We do some strength training. We do yeah, cycling, all this sort of stuff is really ways that we can stay active and we still maintain our level of fitness and we still maintain like a certain level of strength around that injured area. And the road to recovery is so, so much quicker as long as we stay active, but it's under the right guidance. You can't, continue to flare up that injury with the inaccurate uh, or um, with the wrong type of cross training because people can go astray there if they're not following the right guidance and they can continue flaring up a particular injury. We need to make sure that we're paying attention to symptoms and it's well tolerating whatever the, the active rehab that we're giving them. What's your general advice for people on whether or not they can run during an injury or through an injury? Yeah. So let's just say we are dealing with a tendon because tendons tend to behave quite similar. could be in the ankle, could be the Achilles, the knee, the hip. In most cases, let's just say you've had it for a couple of weeks. We pay attention to the levels of pain and we pay attention to the levels of pain when you start your run, during your run, once you've cooled down. And then most importantly, the next day, once you move up and start moving around and someone who's had plantar fasciitis or Achilles or um, hip issues, you might notice that waking up in the morning, the first steps in the morning, everything like that area is particularly stiff or particularly sore. That's a sign that you've overdone things the day before. And people misinterpret this because once, if it's like a low level of a tendinopathy in the early days, it's a little bit stiff when they first start their run, but once they've warmed up, they're pain-free, they're symptom-free. They're like, oh, running's good for me. So then they'll, they'll do all this running pain-free and it's not until the next morning that they're hobbling around because it's extremely stiff and it's extremely sore. That means that you've overdone it. So my advice would be, we do want to pay attention to like low levels of pain are okay. Anything around a three, a two or three out of 10 during a run is totally fine. But on the, on the back end of that, we would need to make sure that it stays stable and it stays at low levels of pain once it's cooled down and, and also stays at low levels of pain and low levels of stiffness the next morning. And so if you've ticked all those time frames, like if you've had a snapshot of all those time frames and it's still relatively stable, it means what you've done has been okay. The tendon has um, tolerated that load that you've put it through. Yes, I agree with all of that. And I think you made a comment earlier that I think is important to highlight, which is the fact that you want to make sure that the rest of your body to the extent possible around that injury is staying active and fit so that your recovery process isn't as challenging. You know, I think I've, I've had athletes face issues where they may be taking complete rest. They get to a point even through that perhaps where they're able to heal their injury with a little bit of rehab, but because they haven't been doing the cross training or some sort of other active aerobic work, then everything else is atrophied. And yeah. so when they build back now, they're, now they're susceptible, not only to re-injury of that issue that they're managing, but also of injuring something else. And then that creates a snowball effect, which can be a bit of a spiral. Yeah. And it's just the concept of like, we've exceeded the, the load capacity. We've exceeded the capacity of a certain structure and yeah, relative rest is going to atrophy a lot of structures and like decondition them in a way so that when you eventually return to running, we're at risk of exceeding that load capacity of a different area. 
And that's often why people don't seek treatment is because they think that when they go to a health professional, they're like, all they're going to tell me is that I can't run and I can't exercise, but I need to exercise because it's my mental release. It's what makes me feel better. And I've worked so hard for such a long period of time building up this level of fitness. I'm not going to lose this level of fitness. And that's a big fear that a lot of people have. And that's why they don't seek treatment. Yep. And I would add, going back to your point about some sort of rehab is likely probably important in almost any case. I, I fractured my elbow several years ago on a, a trail run. I hit a rock, fell funny and landed on my arm the wrong way and broke my elbow, ended up having surgery to get it fixed. And I work with the PT who's, who's thinks very much like you do. And they had me actually starting rehab and I'll put that in air quotes because it was very gentle, just simple, uh, just simple pronation of the wrist within a few days of surgery, just to begin to regain some range of motion at the wrist that eventually would obviously progress to more aggressive rehab that involved the, the whole arm and, and elbow and chest and so forth. But it started almost right away after that surgery in the case, even in that situation of a full-blown fracture. I think, I think it might be more helpful to come up with a list of injuries you haven't had in the past rather than a list of injuries you have had in the past. <laughs> Fair enough. I've been running for 20 years. So I've pretty much had everything you can have. But anyway, all right. So that was a good one. I love the, the idea of sort of debunking that myth that when you're hurt, stop, because that's usually not the answer. All right, we'll go to my next one here. And I actually saw some recent research published on this. So I think... This will be a good one, and I, and I think we'll agree on it. Again, probably a little bit of a softball, but here we go. True or false, Brody, running is bad for your knees. Ah, uh, yes, a beautiful <laughs> one. <laughs> um, and this is like uh, people have been told this so often, and like they might go to a GP and they might have knee pain, and the GP who isn't a runner will say, why are you running for? Running's bad for your knees. And like we talked about when it comes to pain and evaluating pain and the brain kind of processing these things, that's a belief that a lot of people have. And they're like, um, yeah, if people believe that to be true, it's just really, really unhelpful. And if they start getting knee pain, they're like, yeah, it's because I'm a runner. I know running's bad for my knees, but the literature is totally on the contrary when it comes to this. And Running definitely isn't bad for your knees. On the opposite side, running is actually very, very healthy for your knees and better, like your knees will be better um, compared to a population that aren't within the running or, or the fitness and strength kind of um, more sedentary kind of population. And one really, really big study that I refer often to was a study that was done looking at the prevalence of osteoarthritis within knees over a given population. And they show that, uh, there was 125,000 people in this study. So a massive, massive amount of study in this like systematic review. So they gained, they had a look at all other available literature that's out there and then compiled it all into one and um, analyzed the, the stats. And what they found was if you are a runner, a recreational runner, you, your, the prevalence of people within that population is 3.5%. So 3.5% of that population of recreational runners had knee osteoarthritis or would go on to develop knee osteoarthritis in the sedentary group the ones who aren't runners the ones who aren't fit and active their prevalence of osteoarthritis is 10 percent. so you're three times more likely to get osteoarthritis if you're not a runner and that's like i said 125,000 people within that study and we can interpret that a whole bunch of different ways because we're just looking at a snapshot of stats but what we now know is true for osteoarthritis is that it's not wear and tear of your knees. It's not slowly degeneration from the knees as you, from ground reaction force or repetitive um, impacting on the ground. That's not what osteoarthritis is, not what develops osteoarthritis, which a lot of people believe to be true, which would fit the pattern of why runners get osteoarthritis. It's that belief that they ingrain. What we do now know is that ground reaction forces actually stimulates growth of the bone it actually stimulates growth of cartilage which is the the smooth part at the ends of the bone which um is what like the damage of that is what contributes to osteoarthritis but what we now know is ground reaction forces in a, a level within your adaptation zone can actually stimulate a lot of cartilage growth and 
a lot of people who do have low bone density and signs of like early signs of osteoarthritis, actually stimulating that joint, strengthening up that joint and getting in some ground reaction forces actually helps or delays the, the process of osteoarthritis. And that now, now that we know that understanding and we have that idea of the pathology that makes a whole bunch of sense back to that, that study of 125,000 people, why runners are less likely to get osteoarthritis. Yes. And it's interesting. And I, I tend to think, and I'm curious if you agree that this is primarily a myth in, that it is most problematic in America. And I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but at least in America, we have this idea that doing nothing is somehow better than doing something. And mm. it's just not true. This is the classic case of move it or lose it. And, and so either you use your body and therefore fortify it, or you don't use your body and therefore it breaks down. I actually yeah. had the, I actually had the experience of going to one of the, one of these body exhibits. I don't know if you have seen these or heard of these or if they have them I've there. Them. <laughs> but but I went to one of these body exhibits at a natural history museum in Houston. This would have been probably 12 15 years ago, so a while ago. But it's essentially an exhibit that I think is now banned because there were some sketchy things around how these bodies and and body parts were acquired, but, but it was essentially an exhibit showing you parts of the human body. And in many cases, obviously, uh, mummified essentially, or, or preserved so that you could see parts of the human body. And there were some full body pictures where you could actually see all the muscles and bones and tissues. And then they had different body parts in some cases, really fascinating, but perhaps not for the squeamish, exhibit and one of the things that they showcased showcased were these side-by-side -side comparisons and they had everything from a smoker's lung versus a healthy person's lung to you know somebody who was a a runner and who wasn't a runner and it would, in this case it was a femur they were showing and the femur of that runner was significantly uh, thicker looked stronger and just seemed to be much more robust than that non-active person's femur. And so it was a pretty clear picture to me of this very thing, which is that you got to use your body to make it stronger. And if you don't, then it won't be, and it'll break down over time. And I think that's true, especially as you age. Yeah, 100%. And that's really cool that you get to experience that through with that, um, the body museum and even the elderly population, even those in their 80s who do have really severe levels of osteoarthritis, all the evidence supports, first of all, education, education about pain signals, about flare ups, management, that sort of thing. But you need to strengthen the knee as much as you can. And the trap that people get in, often with a lot of injuries, is they will, let's just say they, uh, they're in their eighties. They've got really, um, late signs of osteoarthritis. They walk for half an hour and their knee flares up because they haven't done it. It's like a huge spike in load that they're not used to. And that flares them up. And what they say to themselves is, okay, um, 30 minutes of walking now flares my knee up. I can't handle that. Let me just stick to 10 minutes of walking for the rest of like in small doses. And that reduces their strength, um, a lot as well. And then as the months go on, that knee becomes weaker. And then all of a sudden walking for 10 minutes flares them up and they say, oh, now I can't walk for 10 minutes. Um, let me, you know, just get around on like a wheelchair or something. And they're constantly telling themselves because they've had a flare up that they can't handle that load. And then they spend months and months and months avoiding that level of load, which weakens it further. And then this spiral continues. And several times on my podcast, I illustrate this point, this um, pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. And if I can go back to your example of plantar fasciitis, it's, it clearly illustrates this. A lot of times uh, plantar fasciitis will flare up. There becomes pain. The, the structures become sensitive. It can't, in the short term, can't tolerate the same level of load that it used to just while it's really sensitive and really flared up. So what people do is they say, oh, my plantar fasciitis is flared up. Let me just rest for a week and then I'll try again. And hopefully it's healed by then. And so what you're doing is taking a desensitized, weakened state and you're trying to combat that with complete rest, which weakens it further. And then you try and go back into running a week later. It flares up again because it's been weakened. That sensitized um, structure becomes more sensitized, becomes weaker, and you combat that with a further week of rest. And you're just <laughs> seeing this 
downward spiral of pain, rest, weakness, down to the point where it's walking for an hour now flares it up or walking barefoot flares it up or just running for, you know, two minutes flares it up and you're constantly becoming weaker, 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 weaker as it becomes more sensitized. And it's a, a big trap that I often see runners have. Yep. Another point to reemphasize that complete rest is not best. <laughs> the other thing related to the knee though, and, you know, as a runner myself, as a coach, I see this is that sometimes knee related injuries are related to weakness in the stabilizing muscles, potentially in the feet, ankles, sometimes in the glutes, hips, core. And so it's also important, of course, not only, you know, to run because that's okay. And bearing the load isn't necessarily going to destroy your knee, but it's also important to have that supportive stability in the muscles so that the knee doesn't pick up more load than it should. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the the knees are really um, a really unfortunate joint. If I was a if I was a joint, I wouldn't want to be a knee because what's happening <laughs> is it's a hinge joint in between the ankle and the hip, and all the the power comes from the hip, and all the stability, like interacting with the surface, comes from the ankle. And any little difference in any of those two, the hip or the, the ankle, any slight difference in that magnitudes, the, the, uh, the amplitude of the knee so much. And the knee is the one that cops a whole bunch of those high forces. And that's why we see so much pain or well, the most common area for run for runners is pain to the knee. And it's just like, it's just manipulated by the ankle and by the hip doing all these weird, wacky things and that the, the knee ends up suffering. So yeah, it's really, really unfortunate. <laughs> so for the unfortunate knee, we'll move off the knee <laughs> as, <laughs> as a topic, but all good points there. Let's go to your next one on your list. Yeah. A good change of pace. So Chris, true or false, there is a link between poor quality sleep and increased risk of injury. I would say that's very much true. I think sleep is our number number one recovery tool and we're not getting enough of it. It puts us on edge, which can snowball into a whole host of things, injury being one of them. I would totally agree. Absolutely. <laughs> and I love like, even just like your past episodes with Jason Brooks and talking about like the stress management, like infantry and looking at um, like that, I think he was talking about like that weekly audit of emotional, physiological, like um, behavioral or mental, whatever whatever we're calling it. So that illustrates clearly the multifactorial nature of, it's not just about loads, not just about spikes in training. It's also about nutrition and sleep and stress and those kind of things. And I would totally agree it is true. And there are studies done showing that, um, let's say there there was a study done where they looked at around about 100 endurance athletes. So they looked at runners, they looked at triathletes, um, I think cyclists as well and followed them over two years. And they were filling out these like health questionnaires and, um, training load, um, training logs. And once they were injured, the researchers would then go back and look at their training logs. And they found that if your sleep was less than seven hours, uh, over, a, I think it was a 14 day lag. So they looked at the, the, the last 14 days and if you had less than seven hours sleep, you were 51%, your risk of injury was 51% greater than if you um, maintained a good level of sleep. And there's tons of studies around adolescence as well, particularly well, there's, if you were to look at all the literature, there's the bulk of it is around adolescence and good quality sleep. And um, yeah, three times higher, you're three times more likely to get an injury if you have less than eight hours of sleep if you're a teenager um, over a given week than if you have more than eight hours sleep. So a clear link between quality sleep and increased risk of injury, which makes yeah. a total lot of sense. If you don't, ha- if you have low quality sleep, your body can't repair, your body can't handle the same amount of load that it would if you were um, sleeping with good quality. Yes, not to mention for adolescents, the impact on brain development as well. Yeah, there's so many things. And I think one of the challenges of, and I had a listener email one time and we had kind of a funny debate on the podcast about the running industrial complex and how there's all this stuff you can spend money on in the, the, and under the press or uh, under the pretext of recovery, 
from cryo to Normatec boots to, you know, all sorts of supplements to, you know, even protein powder and recovery shakes and drinks. There's all this stuff that you can spend money on. And probably the only thing, if, if you only had one recovery tool that you invested in and that was your bed and the time you spend in it, then that's probably all you would need. Couldn't ring more true. Totally agree with that. <laughs> but we all we all want the quick fix, I guess, in versus perhaps yeah, and the, the, the flashy marketing along with it as well. Yes. <laughs> Makes us feel good. <laughs> all right. So we'll go we'll go one more each. So I've got one more. You can have one more and then we'll wrap this up. This has been a fun conversation. All right. So my next one to you. I think you'll like this one. True or false shoes can prevent injury. Oh. Yeah, and we can take several directions on this one. <laughs> um, I would say for the most part, I'll say it's false. There might be some very, very, um, if you've had like a prehistory of a certain type of injury, we can manipulate your shoes to reduce the risk on that um, load. But generally speaking, there, there's not a type of shoe given to any given runner to say this will reduce your risk of injury. So as a blanket statement, I'll say it's false. And there are definitely studies to have a look at um, fitting like a type of shoe to a type of runner and seeing how they go. And there's no real correlation um, between yeah injury risk and that sort of thing. We can shift load um, to a certain person. So for an example, if someone has a, a big history of um, pain at the knee, you can lessen, uh, there has been studies showing that if you have a lighter shoe and if you slightly change their mechanics, it can significantly reduce the load on the knee. But what we're doing is we're shifting the load. We're shifting the load further down to the calf, uh, the foot, that kind of thing. So, which would slight, like theoretically slightly increase the risk of injury to those particular structures. So um, my blanket statement would be false. And I'm curious <laughs> to hear your thoughts before I delve in further. <laughs> Oh, I completely agree. I, I think it's false. And yes, I think there are some ad hoc situations that where a shoe might help, but for the most part, this one's false. And I think there's a, speaking of the running industrial complex, there's been 40 years worth of running industrial complex marketing, convincing us that things like stability shoes can prevent injury and things like oh, quote unquote overpronation are bad. I you know am I used to be a running retailer and so I've spent about 7 or 8 years of my life selling shoes on the shoe floor in addition to coaching and one of the things I learned during that process is that there are no silver bullets on the shoe floor certainly not if they tell you there are because they're just lying to you and make money but but because that marketing has been so effective at embedding these concepts of stability and motion control and pronation into our vernacular, then man, if you want to try to convince people otherwise, it's it, it's a tough go. I wrote a blog that you can still find out there called The Myth of Overpronation. This would have been probably five years ago, six years ago, maybe that I wrote this, talking about dismantling some of these myths around footwear and, and injury prevention. And that got a whole lot of backlash, especially from some people because they are convinced that their stability shoe and their post is saving them. And mm. it, it, there's just no evidence to suggest that. In fact, really none of the studies show, you know, as it relates to category of shoe, none of the studies show that a stability shoe or a shoe that so-called controls pronation actually can help you prevent injury in some cases, and in fact, shows the opposite that it can cause an increased risk of injury. You know, the only real science that I've seen around footwear is that you, you're you're you can actually lower the risk of injury simply by changing shoes frequently, so that you're not getting that same loading to the system all the time. And so, there's some evidence to suggest that having multiple shoes in your portfolio is is actually helpful in reducing injuries but the category of shoe unfortunately there's no evidence yeah to suggest that i think it's worth highlighting as well like um 
agreeing with your point that there's no correlation between your foot shape and the type of shoe you need uh, because it's a very common experience for someone to walk into a shoe store they have a look at your shoe uh, your foot shape they have a look at the the height of your arch and then will take that bit of information and say okay this shoe you'll you'll thrive in this shoe um, because of your foot shape. There's no, the, the science shows zero correlation between that. Um, it won't reduce your risk of injury. Um, it won't help like the performance based on that. And where we need to go towards where the, the runner needs to be directed to is try a whole bunch of different shoes, whatever you feel the most comfortable in, that's the one you're particularly going to thrive in the most. And someone with a, low arch might thrive from a um, more of a stability shoe, but there's a whole bunch of other ones, a whole bunch of other runners that do have a, a low arch that won't thrive with that type of shoe. So you need to try what's right for you. You need to try a whole bunch of different shoes, see what's more comfortable, and then um, base that on your, your level of judgment. And while we're debunking a whole bunch of these myths, I'll <laughs> add in as well, when it comes to changing shoes, the same um, marketing and the same like people who want you to buy more shoes will say that you need to change your shoes every like whatever the mileage be thousand Ks, a thousand miles, whatever have you um, just because they want you to come back and keep recycling shoes and keep buying more shoes. And in fact, what I've uh, my opinion on this um, the evidence doesn't really support it, but what I tend to recommend is you need to replace your shoes on three different circumstances. One, if there's significant wear and tear in the shoe, like there's significant, like the sole underneath is significantly worn out. So that's going to be the first one. The second one is if they now become uncomfortable because they're getting quite old, they become uncomfortable. Or three, which is a bit harder to determine if it starts changing your biomechanics. If it's becoming so old that it's starting to change your stride and changing how you're running, then it's probably time for a new shoe. And I did have a podcast interview on, with um, Jay Fasquillier, who's a Canadian and loves his research, loves talking about shoes. And we delved into this topic um, around finding the right shoe for you. And I pretty much just like summarized our, our conversation into five <laughs> minutes, but um, there's some really valuable takeaways for those listeners. Awesome. We'll point people at that one. Okay. So that, that was enough on shoes, but a lot of good provocative stuff there. Let's go to your last one and <laughs> then we'll wrap. More provocative stuff for this last one. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, we might, um, uh, I'm not sure how much in depth we want to go into this, but true or false stretching before or after running does nothing for, to reduce your risk of injury. True or false. Uh, from my experience as a coach, that is a very true statement that the stretching does nothing for us. I personally have stopped stretching a long time ago. Now, I do think there is some evidence to suggest in the studies that if you have a stretching routine that seems to be working with you, for you, then continuing that routine seems to have some evidence. But if you're not doing it, there's no point in starting. It's not going to help you as a runner. You're, re you're nailing all of these. I'm really happy with your responses. Um, <laughs> I think the uh, having a debate can sometimes be really healthy, but I guess it's also really informative if we're both agreeing. But <laughs> yeah, research shows that it does like stretching, particularly static stretching. So that stretch and hold type of stretch doesn't do anything to reduce your risk of injury. It doesn't do anything to enhance your performance and doesn't do anything to enhance recovery after a run. And you you nailed it on the, the nail on the head there. If stretching feels good for you. And this is what I totally recommend. I don't say don't stretch. I say what you should try is running without stretching. You should try running with stretching, try running, stretching like for 10 minutes beforehand, try stretching for two minutes beforehand, see what feels best for you. And then you go do that. But what you can, what we need to avoid is convincing yourself of what that stretching is actually doing. You're doing it because you feel good. You're doing it because um, you feel better out and running and we're not doing anything to reduce risk of injury. We're just doing it to feel better. Same thing with massage, same thing with foam rollers, massage balls, all that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Try it trial and error. See what works for you. For me, I like if I've just rolled out of bed to do like a quick 10 second stretch of um, my main muscle groups of the lower legs. If I decide to do something that's more intense, then I'll focus a little bit more on stretching the hips and get them um, feeling a bit more mobility. If I'm doing like a real intense session or hills, then I'll prioritize a warm up and like a bit more power based stuff and really emphasize the warm up process. 
but this is because it feels better for me. I've trial and errored a lot of things and that's what I've found to be true. And I would add in, there might be a very small percentage of runners that I haven't come across yet, but those who are really <laughs> stiff that might benefit from running uh, from stretching beforehand. And these are the really like maybe 1% of the population or the running population that are so stiff that when they run their biomechanics, their running technique is slightly altered. Whereas if they were to stretch, then that biomechanics, that um, technique is more optimized, but generally as runners, we don't push ourselves through end of range of motion in the running motion anyway. So I, I would kind of pin them that 1% as like more on the elderly side of things. Maybe if you're still running in your seventies um, or maybe just like due to another condition, maybe another arthritic condition or um, some inflammatory condition that you are extremely stiff in particular joints, that might be part of that 1%, but I haven't come across them yet. What's your perspective on yoga for runners? Well, again, it's, if it feels good for you, then do it. So, um, I think there is some, I've been told there is some research out there, which I haven't found yet that, um, stretching outside of your running days. Like if you maintain a nice stretch, um, frequently sessions outside of running. So if you on every second day when you're not running, um, that can help enhance running performance or help enhance your running technique. Um, I haven't come across evidence, but um, yeah, my, my theory would be the same. If it feels good, then do it. Yeah. I think that's probably true for a lot, a lot of things that we could list. One thing I have seen as a coach is that some runners that do a lot of yoga can become hypermobile, meaning they're, they're almost too flexible and that can create a challenge that might lead to injuries for some people because then they lose a little bit of stability in the running motion. But again, that's more specific to probably a few cases I've seen through the years and you have to listen to your own body as you, as you navigate this journey. Yeah. And there are like certain people that are born hypermobile with like their joints are a little bit more flimsy, a lot more flexible and they usually are the ones that tend like teeter towards the, the dancers or the yogas, uh, the yoga people, like um, because they have that high level of flexibility and yeah, you do need to be strong to be a runner. You do need to be stable to be a runner. And though that particular population do need to have a lot of work done around strengthening because we don't want really mobile joints. We don't, they're kind of like flimsy in a way they they kind of run a little bit floppy. Whereas to be an efficient runner, we actually need to be quite rigid and uh, we actually want a, a, a real efficient spring, what we call rigidity. And uh, that tends to improve running economy and tends to just create stability and in my mind that reduces your risk of injury um, quite considerably. So yeah, that's a good point that you make. Yep. Good deal, Brody. Well, we will wrap this episode there with those. I think we got through eight statements and uh, fascinating discussion. Really appreciate you helping me debunk some injury myths. Thanks so much for taking the time, Brody. Yeah. Like I said, I absolutely love this. I love this topic. I, um, it's a big passion of mine. So I'm glad that you've provided an outlet for me <laughs> to um, come on and discuss this further. Awesome. There you go. Brody Sharp, everyone of the Run Smarter podcast, physiotherapist there in his home country of Australia. Really appreciate him taking the time to come on and for being willing to jump into a discussion like that that was so freeform. Didn't know where it was going to go, but I think it turned out pretty well and I hope you guys learned something along the way. Perhaps we debunk some myths for you. As always, you can check us out here at Rogue Running at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.